What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In today's episode, Jay and I take things in a different direction. We consider some of the year-end wrap-ups in FCPA enforcement and compliance and pontifications into the future, which recently caught our eyes. Jay also reflects on the greatest pro football dynasty, how it got there and where it may be going. Some of those lookbacks and prognostications include a five-part series by Tom on the DOJ compliance professionals, SEC bribery schemes and responses, Mike Volkoff, Matt Kelly on seven issues for 2020, Kevin LaCroix on the top 10 DNO stories, Gibson Dunn's Always Great, FCPA Digest this year for 2019, Dave Leifort weighs in from his perspective as the Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week, and what was the year like in export control. I know you will enjoy this episode. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist and the Voice of Compliance, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for another week or another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 187, the week ending January 10, 2020, the Looking Back and Looking Forward edition. In this episode, Jay and I take things a little bit different direction as we consider some of the year-end wrap-ups and pontifications of the future that have caught our eyes, collective eyes, since uh, the first of the year. So, uh, Jay, uh, first of all, uh, welcome. Thanks, Tom. Happy New Year to you. And, uh, Looking forward to taking this, as you said, in a slightly different direction and looking at the uh, uh, the prognostications for 2020. I, I like it all today. It's 1-10-2020, very even and measured. So let's uh, take that tone and go for it. All right. So um, I kind of went crazy this week, Jay, and uh, took a look at the DOJ year in review, the SEC year in review. Then I um, looked at bribery schemes that we uh, I thought were interesting or unique from 2019, and I put together uh, uh, some prognostications for where I think uh, compliance professionals uh, need to focus uh, time, energy, and effort in 2020 and going forward. And uh, also, I took a look at some of the specific responses to the bribery schemes and. The one that uh, probably had the most fun writing, Jay, was looking at foreign compliance uh, issues going forward for 2020 and beyond. And for me, those four were compliance convergence, and that was uh, uh, highlighted by the three releases of uh, compliance program information with the criminal division with the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, 2019 guidance the antitrust division with the evaluation of corporate compliance programs and antitrust investigations. And then OFAC released a framework for OFAC compliance commitments. So uh, I, I see those three types of compliance uh, 
programs converging and a compliance practitioner really needing to be kind of up on all of those. The second was the public-private partnership and the anti-corruption fight. This is something that has been uh, evolving over the past few years. The Department of Justice has gone very far towards laying out real incentives for cooperations to help in the fight against uh, uh, bribery and corruption by having solid and significant credit for self-disclosure, cooperation, remediation, and reimbursement of ill-gotten gains. Uh, I think the the three biggest words, even bigger than document, 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 in 2020 and beyond may well be data, 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 as the Department of Justice has made it clear that companies uh, uh, expect companies to be more robust in their use of data analytics and compliance programs. And then uh, compliance is the ethical edge, Jay. Uh, We've known for many years that companies with more robust compliance programs were generally better run. Ethisphere demonstrated that uh, in their 2019 world's most ethical companies, which had a 10.5% delta over uh, the standard Poor's 500 average. And I certainly uh, posit that uh, more effective compliance equals uh, more efficient business process leading to greater profitability. So those were some of the things that uh, I thought about, Jay. And actually, I was inspired by uh, a post you're going to talk to us a little bit about, um, because last week, Matt Kelly uh, provided his take on seven issues for 2020. Were there any that really struck uh, uh, your eye and Matt's list? Yeah, uh, this is this is a great piece. And as we uh, always like to uh, signify that Matt Kelly is the coolest guy in compliance. And uh, out of the the top two of the seven things Matt uh, looked at in his blog post, uh, the first one was needing a fix to Supreme Court's digital realty trust decision of 2018. And for those of you who have followed that, it ruled that whistleblowers must first report their concerns to the SEC if they want to claim anti-retaliation protections under Dodd-Frank. That decision was correct in law, but terrible in practice, since it sends the message to would-be whistleblowers that they should not bring concerns to the compliance function until they've already lined up a tip at the SEC. Last year, the House approved legislation to extend Dodd-Frank's protections even to those whistleblowers who first report to internal compliance departments. The Senate introduced similar legislation with bipartisan support. So later this year, compliance officers may finally see a fix that restores common sense to the whistleblower protection. The second thing that Matt took a look at was the Federal Reserve's inspection of technology service providers. And last summer, Capital One suffered a huge data breach through AWS Amazon Web Services, which Capital One used to host its software systems. By coincidence, the Fed bank examiners had just started reviewing AWS's cybersecurity posture at that time. And since then, Fed officials have said that they want more power to review tech service providers. Compliance officers should watch to see how those reviews work in practice because the Fed won't be the only regulator doing this. Tech companies will need to accept the greater reality of scrutiny. Companies using tech vendors will need to brace for more questions from regulators, the board, investors, business partners about how you assure the cybersecurity posture of the vendors to use. So those are the top two things. Um, Matt is usually on the cutting edge and, uh, As always, we link to this in the show notes. Next up, uh, another one of our uh, sources that we usually go to on a weekly basis is Mike Volkoff. And uh, what kind of uh, look did Mike do at the FCPA in review? 
So uh, Mike uh, went a little crazy, as I did. First, he did a podcast on it. Uh, then he had a three-part blog post series. In part one, he looked at the record-setting year in uh, fines and penalties uh, for FCPA enforcement. He continued that in part two by taking a look at some enforcement highlights. And then in part three, he channeled his inner Johnny Carson, i.e. Karnak the Magnificent, uh, for those of a certain age, they will understand that reference. For those not of a certain age, look it up. Um, but Karnak the Magnificent was one of the great procrastinators, pro- prognosticators, I should say, of all time. Uh, and uh, so Mike looked at this, though, not from a really compliance program perspective, Jay, but from the enforcement perspective. And uh, the prediction, I think, that struck me the most is the uh, – um, the Goldman Sachs will enter to enter into a record-setting FCPA settlement north of $2 billion. That's based on an apparent reserve for that settlement. So uh, as Mike said, uh, quote, we all begin with one correct prediction likely to occur in early 2020, end quote. That Goldman uh, settlement, if it does occur, could likely year to an- lead to another record year of criminal prosecutions, both in terms of individuals, certainly from the Goldman 1MDB case, but also in terms of um, uh, fine total amounts of fines and penalties. Uh, and then uh, I would just add that uh, Mike also uh, mentioned the Unioil case, and there uh, you had uh, the CEO and CFO uh, both uh, pleading guilty to, um, uh, or, or rather the COO pleading guilty, So, but it was the top two uh, officers, family members, of the sons of the founder have pled guilty to FCPA violations and they uh, identified 25 companies they paid bribes on behalf of uh, in their criminal information. So there's likely a significant number of uh, cases that could come out of uh, that as well. So uh, really good stuff from uh, Mr. Volkoff. So uh, next up, uh, another source that we uh, frequently tap uh, over the years is uh, the Director and Officer Liability blog. This comes to us from Kevin LaCroix, and he takes a look at the top 10 DNO stories of 2019. The liability environment for directors and officers is always in a state of change, but 2019 was a particularly eventful year in the DNO liability arena with important consequences for the DNO insurance marketplace. The past year's many developments have significant implications for what may lie ahead in 2020 and possibly for years to come as well. Uh, here are two stories that struck my eye. Number one was the federal court securities action class action filings remain at historically high levels. In 2019, for the third year in a row, there are more than 400 federal court securities class action lawsuits filed. While the number of lawsuits filing is at elevated levels, the rate of litigation, that is, the number of security suits relative to the number of listed companies, is even higher. Indeed, the 2019 litigation arguably was at its highest level ever. In addition to the significant number of federal court lawsuit filings in 2019, there were also a significant number of state court security class actions lawsuit filings as detailed in the next section. While the number of lawsuits filed each year is of significant interest to companies, insurers, and other observers, the rate of litigation, that is the number of lawsuits relative to the number of listed companies, arguably is of a much greater significance. As the number of lawsuits has increased and the total number of listed companies has decreased, 
the litigation rate has been going up, especially in comparison to long-term trends. I'm going to jump down a little bit into the list. And number five, cybersecurity incidents continue to draw DNO lawsuits. For many years, industry observers have predicted we would see a surge of DNO litigation involving companies that have experienced data breaches. Although cybersecurity-related DNO lawsuits have indeed been filed in recent years, the litigation has never accumulated in the volume that some have suggested as might. But the lawsuits do continue to come in, and several more were filed in 2019. As time has gone by, and the nature of the allegations has changed as well. The highest profile data breach related securities a lawsuit was in 2019 was a suit filed that we spoke about a little bit earlier by Capital One, which was involved in the largest data breach disclosed during the year. A second data breach related security suit was filed in 2019 involving the former customer support services of Zendesk. And then a third cybersecurity related securities lawsuit was filed in 2019. One reason there has not been even more cybersecurity-related DNO lawsuits is that often a company's disclosure of cybersecurity incident does not result in a significant decline in the company's share price. Corporate directors and officers and their insurers face a claims environment that can only be described as challenging. The current claims environment has developed at the same time that insurers are recognizing poor prior underwriting year results stemming from more than a decade of depressed premiums brought about by intense competition. Across the board, DNO insurers are under pressure from senior management to reorient their portfolios toward profitability. As a result, policyholders and insurance buyers increasingly will face disrupted DNO insurance marketplace in the coming year. So next up, Tom, uh, you've got your good friend, Allison Taylor, who contributed a very interesting piece to the FCPA blog. Uh, we should note has recently moved over to left BSR and is now the executive director at Ethical Systems. So first of all, congratulations on your move, Allison. But as usual, uh, she writes great stuff. And uh, in the FCPA blog, she believes that anti-corruption and human rights efforts will converge in 2020. And I talked about compliance convergence. I specifically did not talk about what Allison talks about because I thought she said it much more forcefully and better than uh, I did. So um, uh, she believes that uh, both the UN uh, Human Rights Council and the OECD, the World Economic Forum, have been highlighting human rights uh, efforts and that companies will uh, be, uh, have been forced to and will uh, emerge, rather converge these into overall anti-corruption compliance programs. Uh, she believes the obvious driver is the accelerating shift of human rights oversight from soft law to hard law. Uh, this is becoming an increasingly important ESG issue. Uh, just this week, Jay, uh, a large number of banks indicated that they are reviewing their loan portfolios for companies that have uh, robust ESG programs in place. And, of course, that means a compliance program. So uh, it's not simply uh, a wokeness or a millennial generation who wants to do business with companies that really are making the place, making the world better, but uh, it's better for business. And companies are, are uh, doing that. That's part of the uh, business roundtable statement on the purpose of corporation uh, that came out last year. And the aligning of uh, human rights and anti-corruption makes the real world impact of corruption far clearer to employees. And this uh, builds a more meaningful case 
of compliance convergence uh, for corporate compliance programs. So uh, kudos to Allison. Great article as well. And uh, really looking forward to seeing what she uh, comes up with in her new role uh, over at Ethical Systems. So in looking at the different parts of the enforcement uh, environment, we're picking up an article from J.D. Super, taking a look at the year in export trade control. This comes to us from the McCarter in English Government Contracts and Export Controls blog. And uh, the author, I'll try this, my best, is Zlatko Hadzimalovic. So for several years, we have witnessed the emergence of a statutory and regulatory framework to tighten controls of the export of emerging and critical technology, as well as the review of inward foreign investment in technology. This is more than evident with the listing of Huawei and other Chinese technology giants. The United States demonstrated a willingness to use alternative punitive measures against China. Whether the desired impact of the approach has been achieved is difficult to determine, but we have nonetheless no reason to believe that the tide will ebb in 2020. China has made no concessions regarding its use of industrial subsidies and state-owned enterprises nor cyber theft. There also remain significant doubts as to the ability and the willingness of certain Chinese entities to abide by U.S. regulations. Consider the fact that some 200 entities are listed on the U.S. stock exchange. However, few have allowed the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission or the Public Company Oversight Board, PCAOB, to audit their financials. In 2017, U.S.-listed Chinese companies had a market cap of $1.2 trillion with a T, which included over $120 billion in pension funds. China has alternatively resisted this by positing that an audit of a Chinese company is an offense against Chinese government sovereignty and that an audit report of a Chinese company constitutes a secret. So once again, you've got a situation where China does not want to play by the rules. Uh, In terms of Foreign Corrupt Practices Act enforcement, the DOJ and SEC prosecuted more than a dozen companies between them, leading to penalties of $2.9 billion. Chief among them was Ericsson. According to the DOJ, for the year through December 2019, criminal charges were announced against 34 individuals. So um, the last part of the update that I'd like to pick up that is kind of amusing is that they take a look at uh, trade sanctions and tariffs, and they list all the different levels of tranches against China with what's happening with the government. But the last thing they do is they go down to wine and say, Finally, we take this opportunity to voice our discontent regarding the October 2019 imposition of a 25% tariff on wine imported for France, Germany, Spain, and Britain. While they were amused to learn that the British actually do produce wine, they found that the tariff on French, German, and Spanish wines to be plainly reckless and likely to cause broad societal disaccord. One salient point is that the tariff does not apply to big wines, i.e. those with an alcohol content of over 14%. So their advice is to find refuge in the Grenache, Syrah, Mouvert, and Zinfidel Isles. So we uh, have this in the show notes, and it's, uh, I, I think it's an amusing way to end that article. Next up, uh, why don't you tell us what Dave LaFort has to th- thinking about in Compliance Week? So Dave Lee Ford is, uh, in addition to being a uh, Red Sox, Patriots, and Celtics homer, 
is also the editor-in-chief at Compliance Week, and he wrote a great column on 10 things that we'll be talking about in 2020. They go in a little bit different direction than many of the stories uh, we've been uh, talking about, Jay. Uh, he talked about both uh, anti- big tech being an antitrust crosshairs and deregulation by the uh, Trump administration. Uh, what will be the impact, if any, of a recession on compliance and ethics? Uh, briefly noting that 2020 elections will mean something, although it depends on who and what. Uh, even with uh, the Trump administration's outright attack on whistleblowers, there'll be a greater move to protecting whistleblowers uh, by the uh, U.S. government, uh, particularly around the response to the Digital Realty Trust uh, Supreme Court decision. Data privacy is going to be very big for everyone, certainly because of the California Consumer Privacy Act, but GDPR is um, uh, waiting in the wings for uh, the next big one out of uh, England or the or EU, I would say. Uh, regulators, uh, we, we have touched on their updates to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs and what that means. And then a couple of different ones that I thought were a really interesting, Jay. In uh, ethics and artificial intelligence, is there trouble ahead? That's the question Dave poses. And then uh, are you looking at or are you continuing to look at or are you doing so in a more robust manner? Your supply chains, your geopolitical risk, and third parties outside of the United States. Uh, so third parties are still the greatest source of FCPA uh, enforcement actions, but supply chains and geopolitical risks are certainly becoming more important uh, um, I was uh, before we got on this podcast, Jay. I was on a call with someone asked me, um, a major energy company I used to work for. They asked, "What's their exposure in the in the Middle East?" And uh, that's a question that uh, not only is on the forefront of many CEOs' minds, but CCOs as well. If you have any uh, operations in the Middle East? Uh, what is your risk? Uh, what are you going to do uh, about pulling your people out? Uh, are you going to do business? In that part of the world, and I'm not talking about with Iran, but with any of the players who may be around Iran. And all of those questions uh, are going to be on the forefront of, of a lot of people's minds uh, going forward. Jay, for our uh, final part of this uh, part of the presentation, we have uh, the Gibson Dunn uh, annual uh, year end FCPA update. This is literally one of the top ones uh, around, uh, and uh, they. Uh, put out a great report, lots of great graphics that many of us use uh, throughout the year. What uh, struck you about this year's report? Uh, I, I think just the the scale and the, the scope of these numbers. So <clears throat> I know we've mentioned them before in this podcast, but I'd just like to mention it all in one spot because they did such a great job of uh, combining everything. So 2019 was by many measures the most significant year ever in the FCPA enforcement. More than $2.6 billion in corporate fines set a new high watermark driven by the two largest corporate resolutions in the history. 54 FCPA enforcement actions or a total of 73 cases, including ancillary actions brought by the FCPA units of both the DOJ and the SEC, each ranked second only to 2010 in the annals of enforcement. Four FCPA and FCP-related trials is a high-water mark as well. And on top of this, FCPA enforcement policy guidance from the DOJ, an expanding body of case law on the FCPA, and related offenses, among many other developments, 
and there's a strong argument that international anti-corruption enforcement has never been more robust. So as Tom said, there's some um, great graphics that everyone uh, can use for your PowerPoint presentations. And this year, uh, if you go to the Gibson Dunn website, you can sign up for it. And they are really great about getting all this information together and encourage people to use it in educating people. Impressive as these numbers are in their own right, last year in 2018's year-end update, uh, FCPA enforcement statistics increasingly tell only part of the story. The DOJ's FCPA unit brought more corruption cases under related statutes, such as money laundering, than it did under the FCPA. In 2019, criminal FCPA enforcement actions were back out in front with 35, but with an additional subset of 19 FCPA-related criminal enforcement actions, continued a trend of extra FCPA enforcement. So if you look at the raw numbers, DOJ matters were 35 and SEC were 19 for 2019. But if you add on these extra cases, it brings it all the way up to 54. Uh, the areas that the report will delve into is besides looking at specific geographic areas, uh, we just talked about the high water mark for corporate FCPA financial penalties. Uh, something that I'll talk about in a second is FCPA clusters. Then they also look at DOJ issues regarding declinations despite aggravating factors. The SEC continues to invoke aggressive theories of FCPA liability, and the DOJ continues to bring a significant number of FCP-related charges. So what they take a look at here is what they're calling FCPA clusters, a core platform of the stratospheric success of the DOJ and the FCPA, SEC's FCPA enforcement over the past years is the significant leverage that agencies have employed to turn singular investigations into multiple, sometimes even myriad enforcement actions. One way to do this is to charge both the company or one of the more employee agents. Another is to use your entity at the center of a particular activity as a hub and then proceeds out. Such examples include the Panalpina oil services cases of 2010 and the Petrobras Operation Car Wash investigations, which netted FCPA charges in each of the last four years. So, uh, you know, this is not something new, but it is significant and it kind of gives these cases uh, extra life and legs moving forward. So as we said, uh, besides doing this FCPA recap for the next two weeks, Gibson Dunn We'll have several other real great uh, industry-specific reports that you should check out, and you can also link to websites that uh, webcast has happened all, uh, as well. So thanks to Joe Warren and the team at Gibson Dunn for putting together such a useful and comprehensive report. So, Jay, I continue my uh, podcast series of 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program. This week I uh, highlighted five different areas. Uh, day six, on January 6th, I detailed a code of conduct. January 7th, I looked at policies and procedures. On January 8th, I looked at internal controls. Uh, yesterday, January 9th, I considered 360 degrees of compliance communication. And today, January 10th, I look at the use of social media and compliance. So if you're interested in uh, updating or enhancing your compliance program, take a look at my 31-day series I have now. Uh, have it, it has its own iTunes channel uh, that I'm going to link to in the show notes that will, uh, if you want to just go through and detail the 31 days, uh, 
separate and apart from any of my other podcasts, this would be the iTunes feed for you. So I'll continue this through 31 days of January. So I hope uh, listeners will uh, check it out. So Jay, I don't know if you heard, but last week the New England Patriots lost to the Tennessee Titans. Does this end a 20-year era of not simply sustained greatness, not simply seven Super Bowls, but is it in the of the greatest dynasty in the history of pro football? What are your thoughts? Well, they talk about old mother Hubbard going to the cupboard and she found that the cupboard was bare. I think uh, we kind of saw with a uh, glaring, uh, just uh, a, a glaring episode that, you know, the, the, the cupboard is definitely empty. Uh, the Patriots, as you said, has had success, um, you know, consistent success for the last 20 years. And, you know, there are people who uh, the way the Patriots use them, they're more successful on the Patriots team than they can be at other teams. Uh, there are situations where you lose coaches. There are situations where you lose players. So I think for the longest time, Tom Brady has been very successful working together with Coach Belichick and the Crafts to kind of put up a facade over this team. And we don't always have the best players and we don't always have the receivers that somebody like Tom Brady should have uh, on, to be throwing to. And this year, there were just too many people that were taken out of the lion, the, taking it out of the lineup and weren't able to uh, contribute. So, uh, Tom, I'll quickly go over. This started off in training camp when center David Andrews was diagnosed with a blood clot in August. He was placed in injury reserve for the year, and other injuries to tackles and guards delayed the offensive line coming together. Next, the fullbacks took a huge hit. James Devlin was out, and then his backup was out, and they had to try to reinvigorate the running game with a repurposed linebacker, Orlando and Roberts. Uh, the receiving court never got off the ground. Another thing that really hurt the offensive line was not having Gronk because he's such a, a vicious and complete, uh, you know, blocker. And then uh, in the kicking game, we lost Steven Goskowski. So I think it's just a matter of those deaths by a thousand cuts. And I think Brady still definitely has the ability to contribute to a team. But the question is, is uh, I don't think New England has the money uh, to afford Brady and also bring on those complimentary pieces that they've been skimping on over the last few years. What do you think, Tom? So, Jay, the thing that's intrigued me, and, and I love greatness in sports, and whatever you feel or don't feel about the Patriots, you have to concede they are truly great. And they've been great. They've had one coach, one owner, one quarterback for this sustained run. So you, you cannot take away uh, any of those persons and, and perhaps expect to have that sustained 20-year run. But it also brings up a couple of points that I think are important for the compliance practitioner, and that is not only stability, but also process. And although Belichick does not use the word process, it's clear if you study the Patriots, um, he's around creating a culture that uh, 
is largely around process. And as recently as uh, today, <clears throat> an article came out uh, from uh, the new New York Giants head coach, Joe Judge, <clears throat> talking about the lessons he had learned from uh, working for Be- Belichick. <clears throat> and the, uh, the, the first one listed, I think, really spoke to me about this process, which is be flexible within your personnel. Don't try to shove round pegs into square holes. And that goes to what you said, Jay, which is they are able to put players who may be at the end of their career, may have not been successful in other places, and ask them to do one or two things very, very well and uh, within a system and scheme. And I thought that the defeat of the Patriots this year really was around the scheme and system which uh, did not put in the players that complemented the skill set of Tom Brady as a 42-year-old quarterback. He is not what he once was. Uh, His mobility is limited. I think he can still rifle a pass when he needs to, but he needs to have uh, fast receivers who can not only accelerate but uh, have quick separation where he can hit them on quick, fast routes and let them do their thing after that. So – I, at this point, do not think the uh, Patriots dynasty is over. Uh, unlike you, I feel like they will find a way to sign Brady and they will find a way to put in players to meet the skill set of this uh, uh, next iteration. I, I'm not sure <clears throat> Brady has many years left. As I said, he is 42. Uh, so father time wins all uh, games and contests. And at some point, he's not going to to be able to to play at the level needed. But I think he's got at least one more year in him. I would love to see him stay in New England and have Belichick perhaps do his greatest year of coaching ever to see if they can uh, make it back to the sustained level of greatness they have uh, shown us for the past 20 years. Jay, I'd like to end with uh, going in a little bit different direction. Um, you are a self-acknowledged uh, New England homer. You uh, grew up in New England, although you live in fair, sunny Southern California now. Um, what did the Patriots mean to New England? Uh, certainly, the New England has had sustained greatness in basketball with the Celtics in the 60s, a little bit in the aughts of this uh, decade. We saw the Patriots, as we've talked about, with a sustained run of excellence never seen in the NFL. But uh, it seemed to me that uh, it was always about the Red Sox and that uh, the pain and the emotional suffering of uh, people from New England <clears throat> turned on the curse of the Bambino and really was never lifted until uh, 2004. And since that time, I think uh, the uh, Red Sox have won three World Series Um so they've certainly established themselves as winners. Um, but what, uh, what did the Patriots mean kind of in the greater New England sports psychology gestalt? Well, I, I think you've got to think about New England having uh, two parallel sports tracks. And one of them is that, uh, you know, perception of, uh, the curse of the Bambino in 1918. And, you know, the, the only other organizations that were probably more long suffering than the Red Sox 
were the White Sox and the Cubs, who now both have their uh, World Series ring for this uh, decade and for this millennium. Uh, the Patriots allowed New England to compete on a much bigger level because NFL is just such a behemoth and everybody watches the Super Bowl and everybody, um, you know, wa- watches the games on Sunday. But I still think if you look into our inner chowderhead psyche, it's always going to be a Red Sox town. And there are just stories that when the Sox won for the first time in 2014, that family members visited grave sites and actually spoke to their ancestors who had uh, wallowed away in futility of the Red Sox that now we finally have the championship. So uh, for kids who have been born in the last 20 years in Boston and who grew up only knowing Boston as the uh, city of champions, uh, it's it's uh, a complete foreign thing for somebody like me. So uh, I've not I'm not a bandwagon guy with the Patriots. I've been probably a fan of them since my mid teens. It's always fun to go to Fenway Park. We did it last spring. Hopefully, we'll do it again. But uh, I think with all that greatness that the Patriots embody. Uh, I think people almost take it for granted now. So that's why there's such a keen interest as to, you know, who's the magician? Is it Belichick? Is it Brady? Will there be one more year? So uh, I, I, I think that we're still a Red Sox town, but we love our Patriots just as much. With that, Jay, you want to take us home? So on behalf of Tom Fox, both the voice of compliance and the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, We'd like to thank you for joining us for the first podcast of 2020 for This Week in FCPA, episode 187, for the week ending January 10th, the Looking Back and Looking Forward edition. We hope you have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you next week. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. If you'd be so kind as to leave a review and rating on our iTunes channel, we would greatly appreciate it. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week where we take a look at some of the compliance ethics stories which caught our collective eye and perhaps talk about uh, the playoffs once again. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.